Thanks for listening to one of our messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. in person and online. To find out more about our church or to connect to any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you seek to follow Jesus. Everybody, how are we this morning? Good, man. If we haven't met, my name is Charlie. I usually hang out right here after the service. Come say hi. I forget. What are we talking about today? Oh, that's right, politics. This is going to be so good. Before we get into the good stuff, here's some better stuff. Some family business. Uh, We are an elder-led church, which means there's a a few guys that prayerfully lead this place with wisdom, grace, and love. And every once in a while, we meet together and people roll on and off the board because that's healthy. Uh, that, That stops people from having too much control if you're on it for two decades. And so over the last three or four months, we've been talking to Stu Brown and prayerfully considering his uh, just joining of the elder board. And so we've gotten to a place where we've convinced him it's a good idea. And, and uh, this is the point as the church, when we throw his name out to you guys, uh, per the biblical requirements of eldership in Timothy and Titus. And we have a 30-day kind of window, if you will, that if you know something that we don't know that would disqualify him from being an elder, character-wise, this isn't just like one time he took my parking spot, let's be mature Christians. Uh, but if you know something deeply in his character that we should know about as we prayerfully consider him joining the elder board and leading our church with wisdom and kindness and compassion, uh, email us at elders at crossroadsbible.org. That goes just to us. And if not, in 30 days from now, we'll kick him on the elder board and pray for him. And, and uh, I've gotten to know him over the last couple months. And man, he's fantastic. He's the kind of guy I want to be when I grow up. That's me calling him old. All right. Um, kidding. Uh, we're going to dive into our topic today. The series, this is the end of it. It's been really good, and I know that because my sermons have been longer and longer and longer. Uh, about three or four months ago, we said, hey, we want to do a, a series where we kind of listen and lean into what we're talking about and show people that our gospel, the hope we have in Jesus, isn't just like one day when we get to heaven, but it's right here, right now. And so we got 175 questions, and we tried to group them in different categories and or orders. Uh, and we've done it for a couple reasons, like I said. One is to see our faith as lived out right now. Two is to recognize that, man, the church has got to, has got to, has got to recapture the ability to disagree and still dialogue, to disagree and still find unity. We've lost that ability. And when we're at a church where everybody looks like us, we don't grow. You know that? (laughs) We don't see the fullness of who God is. And so some of these topics you're going to disagree with us on, and that's okay. Got an email this week from the sermon I gave last week, and they said some kind things. And this woman who I know, who I love, said, hey, and the good news is, Charlie, I've only disagreed with you once in this whole series. And I said, good for me, (laughs) you know? But but I I celebrate that because I think this has got to be a place where you say, man, I... I don't know if I'm there yet, or I don't know if even you're right, or I think I might disagree, but let's talk about it, because what unites us is bigger than what society says is trying to divide us. And today, that is never more important than when we have the conversation about politics. So, like we do every week um, in this series, we're going to dive through about six of our questions this week. A little, a little less structured, if you will, than most sermons. There's not kind of an intro tension and then some body build out and then a big idea at the end. There's going to be application kind of throughout as we, as we go through these. And it's a little course. We're trying to lump as many together as we can at the same time. And what we don't get to, we'll have in our podcast in season three. So I think as we start, 
application from today hopefully hits throughout the entire message. So as we start, we begin by praying that, that Holy Spirit, just speak to me and show me, show me who needs to hear what you're teaching me. Show, show me what I need to be convicted about and what I need to celebrate and where I need to see you more clearly and where maybe I need to change some of my thoughts or behaviors or something else so that I might live more in line with the ways and rhythms of Jesus. And at CBC, we have a phrase that we say that the conviction happens in this place when, uh, when we read the scriptures, that it's mostly inward towards conviction, not outward to critique, which means that we ask what God is doing right here, right now. And guys, today we're going to need it because we're talking about politics and the world we live in. The political arena is all about critique and not about conviction. And today I want to change that a little bit. Um, so let's pray. I'll ask you to pray and then we'll dive into the good stuff. God, I'm thankful that we can be here for the diversity in this room, for the differences in belief, for the differences in political affiliation. I'm thankful that you're bigger than those things. Holy Spirit, teach us today. Give us a, a grace in how we see the scriptures and understand uh, the big ideas. Give us a grace in how we communicate with others before and after. Give us a grace in how we treat one another just because you have given us so much grace when you came for us. I, I just ask if you're comfortable, take a few minutes, a few seconds, excuse me, and and ask the Holy Spirit to speak to your spirit this morning. And ask that you pray for me that I speak with grace and some wisdom that I've picked up through reading. And I speak in a way that makes God more beautiful today. God, we humbly come before you today and pray all these things in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. amen. So just to catch you guys up, I want to give you a rundown of kind of the, the kind of questions we got. So I, I grouped them in categories, and there's, again, a lot more than this, but this gives you kind of an idea on the proportionality of what we got to ask. So uh, on the bottom of the list of things, there's all these one-offs, too, that happened, and we kind of are going to tackle those in our podcasts. But we really did deal with the ones that were most sent in. We got three questions on tithing. Not going to go there. Everybody said Amen. Yeah, that's right. You're the ones that don't give. Uh, <laughs> you're kidding. Uh, we got four questions on creation. We got four questions on heaven. We got five on those who walk away from Jesus. We covered that one. We got six questions on mental health. We covered that one. We got seven questions on sexuality. We covered that one. And we got 17 questions on politics. Yeah. We got 17. I think it's crazy the disproportionate amount of questions we had about how we, how we uh, grapple with or wrestle with the political discourse dialogue in the gospel. And, and look, I, do, I don't think it's our politics good. I think it's we don't know how to act in this current environment. I think it's overtaking the narrative of the church right here, right now. And so as followers of Christ, we're, we're asked, what are we doing? Since COVID started, it sped up the disagreement and disunity in the political uh, arena, in the discord re discourse we've had. I felt it. I don't know if you've known people that have left the church because of politics, but I do. This one that I've known for two decades. It has come to divide and it's dividing the church. So today, I don't, I'm not trying to change your party affiliation. I'm really not. That's not the purpose today. I'm trying to, here's my big idea up front. I'm not trying to change your party affiliation. I am trying to change your affections. 
when it comes to politics. I'm not trying to make you Democrat or Republican. I'm not trying to make you an independent or a libertarian. I'm trying to put into perspective what the political conversation is in relationship to the gospel and in doing that, change our affection for those two things in those conversations. I find it interesting that in the New Testament, Jesus was offered political power three times and each time he said no. I find it more interesting that the first time he was offered it, it was from the devil. That should tell us something, <laughs> right? <laughs> Think about that. Let's go home, all right? I find it interesting that I feel like some people today might look at the church from afar and feel like the church has leveraged the power of our witness for political gain. Russell Moore, who's a commentator, used to work for the SBC, but his politics caused a division there, said, um, we now see young evangelicals walking away, not because they don't believe what church teaches, but because they believe the church itself does not believe what the church teaches, especially around politics. Uh, the Public Religion Research Institute in 2016, it's gotten worse since then. In 2016, after that election, did a poll and they reported that of the Americans that left their childhood religion in adulthood, 16% said they did so because of politics. Not because they didn't trust or love Jesus, they left their church because the church spoke about, got too political. There's a guy named Randall Balmer, who's written about a dozen books on this. He's a prophet at Yale Divinity School, and he says, my study of American religious history convinces me that religion always functions best at the margins of society, not, at the, not in the councils of power. For when religion hankers after power, it loses its prophetic voice. So today we ask the question, what does the Bible say about politics? Because I am convinced that we're losing our leverage and we're losing our legacy because we're talking about it the wrong way. Yeah? So we're going to dive into some examples in the New Testament and Jesus. But before we do that, there's three of my favorite quotes on politics, and they're all by Winston Churchill. So I thought I'd just share to lighten the mood just a little bit. The first one is, it's been said that democracy is the worst form of government, except for all others that have been tried. That's the truth. He also said, the best argument against democracy is a five-minute conversation with the average voter. Yes, sir. That is true. Or my favorite, you've probably heard this one. If you're not a liberal when you're younger, you have no heart. If you're not a conservative when you're old, then you have no brains. All right? <laughs> you know? I love this, and I use that to say this. Hey, man, in this room, just so you know this, so we've made sure to say it, in heaven there will be both Republicans and Democrats. And some people said, what? <laughs> Notice I didn't say, you know, libertarians. They want to do everything on their own. That is antithetical to the gospel. I'm kidding. <laughs> Joking. Joking. So this is not a conversation about what's the party of God. There are, there are parts of the gospel in both parties, and if you can't see that, we need to look again. This is a conversation about the priority of politics as we talk about Jesus. This is a conversation about what the Bible, the perspective that the Bible puts politics in, because we've said it every single week. But these conversations aren't new. Sometimes we believe that new things only happen now because they're new to us. That's just arrogance. These conversations have been happening, whether it's this week or the past four weeks, throughout the church for thousands and thousands of years. We are joining our voice to the conversation. And today's about politics. Let's define terms real quick. I think it's important. So Jennifer A. Marshall is a vice president for the Institute of uh, Family, Community, and Opportunity at the Heritage Foundation. I like how she writes. She defines politics like this. She says, politics is about the way we order our lives together as servants of the creator of the Lord of the universe and making a vital contribution to that endeavor. Politics is the way we figure out how to meet everyday needs, solve problems, and sort out our differences. 
It's about harmonizing diverse interests and building consensus around what's worth pursuing as a society. I like that idea of politics. I would say it like this, politics in this country is a societal construct and contract of the people, by the people, and hopefully for the people so that the people might flourish. That's what we're trying to do. Now, different parties have different ways of getting there, but this is where we begin by defining this is what politics are. They're a construct of people so that people might live better lives. Now, now, you can argue that doesn't happen. You can argue you disagree with the power structure. You can argue those things, but hopefully that's the purpose of politics is we together create a better society where we can all flourish. And let's talk about how we get there. And so when we have these conversations, it's not just limited to us. It happened thousands and thousands of years ago. We're going to go to two examples in the New Testament. Jesus dealt with politics all the time. You probably know this one. The first one's in Mark 12 when some Pharisees and a Herodian goes to a different political affiliation of the day, goes to Jesus and says, hey, teacher, we know you're a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by the others because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach uh, the way of God in accordance with (coughs) the truth. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? Look, Jesus is caught in the middle of a political struggle between the Greek world and the Roman world and the Jewish world. Part of the reason why the Romans didn't like the Jews to begin with is because they kept usurping, tried to usurp the power of Rome, and Rome didn't very much like that. Actually, the term Christian got its, uh, its roots from a, a Latin phrasing that basically meant I'm a follower of, and there was a lot of those in the first century. If you were a follower of Herod, you were Her- uh, Herodony. If you were a follower of Nero, you were a Nerodony. If you're a follower of Caesar, you were a Caesarodony. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you were in Christianity. So it's the idea that they were looped into a group of political affiliation because of who they followed. So, so Jesus gets asked in this point, like, who do you follow is what they're asking. Do we give what is to Caesar Caesar's? And this is how he responds. He said to him, give back to Caesar what is Caesar and give to God what is God's. He's differentiating between the two. He's deprioritizing one and I think more so prioritizing the other. The politics of Jesus' day runs very deep. Well, what he does there is he goes beyond just the simple answer and looks at the purposes of what taxes are there for, and we're going to get into it in a second, what identity was there for. Uh, let's go to another example just so you see it. Matthew 19. Most people don't see this as a political question. It really is. The Pharisees came to Jesus to test him, and they asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? You're thinking, Charlie, that's not political. It was deeply political. The Mishnah, the oral interpretation of the New Testament in the Hebrew texts, Jewish texts, they, they talk about two warring sides at this time from rabbinic influences. You have this rabbi named Hillel and this other rabbi named Shammai, and they had very different interpretations of the text. It was incredibly political. They were incredibly influential. And so they go to Jesus to ask this question because the two positions were incredibly known. Shammai permitted divorce for cases of unfaithfulness. He was a conservative in the group. Whereas Hillel permitted divorce, this is a quote from the Mishnah, even if a woman spoiled or spilled a dish, Right? Yeah, so they're coming and asking him, what political camp do you fall in line with? Are we Hillel's camp or are we Shammai's camp? Are we a conservative in how we interpret the Hebrew text or a liberal? Do we have those debates now? Yes, yes, we do. What does Jesus say? Jesus looks at the people, and if you keep reading on in that context, he actually goes back to why marriage was instituted in the first place. And so look, the whole point of what we're pointing out in this first question of what's the role of how do we deal with politics in in the church is we always need to remember that even though Jesus was surrounded by political discord, 
and surrounded by political influence, he never forgot the greater purpose of why he came. He never bowed the knee to any one part of politics because the purpose of his kingdom and the purpose of his rescue plan and the purpose of his redemption was greater. We have to recognize and begin with the priority of politics in a biblical narrative. And while it's in play, it's not the most important issue at play in our conversations as Christians. Like Jesus, we have to put politics in its place. There is a a Lutheran priest who wrote in a November 2007 article, uh, the Journal of Lutheran Ethics, and I love how he phrases it. He says, Christian citizens should approach this question with the assumption that religion and politics, while necessarily kept in conversation, should intrude only with caution into one another's fears. They are inevitable acquaintances, but not normally intimate partners. Like how he phrases that. We begin by asking the question, what is the priority of politics in our lives as Christians, in our lives as the church? Recognizing and realizing that while Jesus was surrounded by political discord and influence and tension, he never made it his greater purpose. I wonder if people think that about the church now. It's just not in any way downplaying patriotism, it's recognizing priority. Because the other side of that coin is, do you know how lucky we are to be born in the United States of America? Do you have any idea, this day of all days, when we reflect and remember, do you have any idea that you hit the genetic jackpot to be born here? In the history of mankind, the most affluent and diverse and opportunistic country in the world that is not arguable. You can argue we have a long ways to go. I'm not saying we don't. I'm simply saying we are a lucky people to be here. This is not a question about patriotism. This is a question about priority. Jesus seemingly put the priority on the purposes of God over any political discord, even when people asked him point blank. That brings us to our next question. If it's a question of priority, then what does, somebody sent this in, the Bible say about the difference between political and spiritual beliefs, and can you separate the two? Short answer is, I really, really hope so, you know? Let's go to that story in Mark again, Mark 12. I said, hey, do we give to Caesar what is Caesar's? And he said, if we broaden out the text a bit, Jesus' full answer is, why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius, the coin, and let me look at it. They brought the coin, and, he asked, and they asked him, whose image is on this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, then give back to Caesar's what is Caesar's, and give to God's what is God's. And it says, this is my favorite part. The next phrase was, and they were amazed at him. Next time you're asked a question about politics, just duck the question entirely. And watch people be like, what? No, wh- why they were amazed is, I think what he's not saying here is the most important part. He's saying, yeah, sure, this is his image on it, so give it to him. But by correlation, that means anything that has my image on it is mine. And we are made in the image of God. I think it's a beautiful differentiation between the power of politics and the personhood of Jesus as he's saying that you are created in my image. I think what he's doing there is taking back what's rightfully his while putting religion uh, uh, politics in its place. Can we separate the two? We have to. One gives identity and one doesn't. That's so important. We've talked about it a lot over the last three months because I think it's the question that drives our society right now is how are you defined? He says, give this to Caesar because it's Caesar's, but you are mine and that's going to drive who you are. There is a difference between our religious beliefs and our political beliefs or affiliations. One gives us identity and one does not. Do you know why? Because as good as politics are, as good as our president is, as bad as our president is, as good as our Congress is, No matter how good we get politically, that will never, ever, ever save us. Ever. Your guy can be in office for two decades. It's not going to do you a a bit of good to save your soul. 
Jesus says that the gospel came to save, rescue, redeem all people. And I am the way that happens, not through any kind of political agenda or system. It's important to remember, sometimes I, I feel like we believe that our way out of the evil of the world is if we vote the right way. It might help, but it won't fix it. The Bible makes it pretty clear the reason we are this way, see week one of the series, is we're broken and God saves, God redeems, and God restores. But to understand the difference between the political sphere and the religious sphere, you've got to understand something deeper. That you and I as followers of Jesus are affiliated to God because we are no longer citizens here, but, yeah, citizens of heaven. Paul puts it like this in Philippians 3. Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior there, Lord Jesus Christ. You know what's really interesting about that phrase? It's who he's writing to. So he writes this to the church at Philippi, and the church at Philippi was incredibly patriotic. Octavius, who became um, Emperor Augustus, actually made Philippi an official Roman colony. And so most of this city was filled with ex-military Roman citizens. They were off the charts patriotic. And it's to these people in this place that loved their country, they were Roman citizens, which was the beacon of the best you could be in the first century world. He writes and says, you are not a Roman citizen. You're a citizen of heaven. Let that sit. They loved their country. And Paul says to them, first and foremost, you are a citizen of somewhere else, not this place. He didn't send it to, send it to people that hated Rome. He sent it to people that loved Rome. He says, understand first and foremost that when you follow Jesus, you have a new citizenship, a new allegiance. Like I said, it's not about patriotism. It's about priority. And, and the thing that we have to understand about citizenship, especially in a first century context, in a, in a king-like mentality, is that what drives your conduct is where you find your kingdom. I think the problem sometimes in the political discord is we've known Jesus as our savior, but we've also forgotten that he's our king. And one gives authority. I love what Andy Stanley says. He says, once the church relegated Jesus to the role of forgiver of our sins rather than king of our lives, we opened up the door to lesser kings because thrones never remain empty long. Why is this important? I think as a church, we have to redeem and reclaim the identity that we are citizens of heaven and our king is not our president, it's our Jesus. I think we have to remember and, and be sure to say often that no matter who's in office, God is still in control. I think we have to reclaim our identity as citizens of heaven, not citizens of America. I'm glad I'm here. But the Bible defines me differently and does you too as followers of Jesus. And that changes our priorities. Because when those things clash, it reminds me what road I'm supposed to take. So for example, you know what started yesterday? Soccer season in the fall. All right. Next 10 weeks of soccer stories, everybody. Gear up. We won yesterday like 12 to 3. It was amazing. I know. Just whipped them. <laughs> it was so good. So I'm coaching again. I'm by myself this year, and I'm coaching. And next week, we actually have uh, one of our best friends is having a birthday party for uh, a friend of Eleanor's. And it's at 10 a.m., and we have a game at, at, I think, like 8 or 9. And so we're asked that question right now, well, do we go to this party? And the answer is going to be no. Why? Because I'm a soccer coach in the fall. And there are seven little girls who look up to me for my natural athleticism. When somebody said, yeah, right. When you laugh, it hurts my feelings. 
But no, for the next seven weeks, I said, man, this is who I'm going to be on Saturday morning. This is what matters. This is what I've committed to. This is my priority. If you know your priorities, then when things come into conflict, you know which road to take. Jesus says you're a citizen of heaven, not a citizen of this country. And while they're good and hopefully they run parallel, sometimes they don't. And when they don't, remembering that helps us make our decisions. And so first and foremost, how do we deal with the, the conflicting natures or sometimes um, the, uh, the, the parallel natures of our beliefs and our political beliefs, of our spiritual and the political? We hope they align, but when they don't, we remember which one gets priority over the others. But let me give you another reason why it matters that we differentiate the two. It's because Jesus came so that we might make a difference in this world. And he was pretty clear on how that would happen. In John 17, he talks about... Um, kind of his prayer. It's his high priestly prayer to his people. He's literally on his way to the cross. And, and, he, and he prays for his disciples one last time. And, and he expresses his hopes and his wants and his desires. And he's praying to God that he might be with his people. And he says in verse 15, my prayer is not that you take them out of this world, that you protect them from the evil one. And he goes on And he says that my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for these who believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you've sent me. I've given them to the glory that you gave me and that they may be one as we are one. I and them and you and me so that they might be brought to complete unity. You know Jesus' prayer before he went to the cross? It wasn't for freedom for his disciples. (laughs) It wasn't for success. It was for unity, because I think he knew that the way that we were going to make a difference in the world through the kingdom of God is as we stuck together as followers of Jesus. And I feel like we've lost the value of unity at the cost of political parties. And I think God says one is better than the other. We've come to this place where we say a lot where you can disagree and then you have to disassociate instead of saying, wait, what unites us is greater than what divides us, especially political, because you could be a Democrat and I could be a Republican or vice versa, but we have one God that unites us over both of those things. Pew Research reported in 2019 that 55% of Republicans and 47% of Democrats um, they, they found that those members of the other party were, m- were more immoral than the average Americans. What that means is that I believe that the party on the other side is worse morally than all the other people that I know because of their political affiliation. The percentage of Americans who strongly dislike members of the opposite party has gone up 400% in two decades. We're in a place where The opposite party often leads to not just division, but disassociation. And the church is not immune to this. I go back to Russell Moore. He's a writer for the SBC and in leadership there for years. He came out and wrote an article against voting for Trump in 2016, and it cost him his job over time. I'm not taking political sides here. I'm simply saying that we see the division creep up in every facet of the church too. The Atlantic wrote an article in June of 2022 this year, and it's about the church and politics. There's a, a line that stuck out to me. It says the church is not a victim of America's civil, civic strife. Instead, it's one of the principal catalysts. We gotta ask ourselves the question, are we contributing to the disassociation and disunity in our world because of politics or are we trying to reconcile, redeem, and rescue it for the sake of Christ? There is a, uh, a something called the fundamental attribution error. Do you guys know what that is? It's, it's our tendency to attribute others' behavior to their character while we attribute our behavior to our circumstance. I mean by that is like if 
I was late to church this morning, it's because the traffic, it's because my kid, it's just not my fault on so many levels. If you were late, you hate Jesus, you know? It's the idea that anything I do is, man, I, out of my control, I tried really hard, but anything you do, that's a personal character issue you need to rectify because I am better than you. We look at the other side and we say that you have a, a fundamental character error instead of giving ourselves the privilege of saying it's time, space, and circumstance. Justin Gibney, he's a political strategist and he founded something called the And Campaign. He said, one of the ugly realities about hating your political opponents is that you start off hating their vices and you end up hating their virtues as well. In your contempt, you begin to believe that everything about them is wrong, even their insights and practice that can actually improve you. One of my favorite quotes I've used often was by President Bush. He said, too often we judge other groups by their worst examples while judging ourselves by our best intentions. How does unity fit into the conversation of the church and politics? Does it divide us? Or are we citizens of something that calls us to something to be united in the middle of our differences? I think if you can never see any good in the other side of the political aisle, we have a problem. I think if you quote Tucker or Matta more than Jesus, we have a problem. <laughs> I think if you say amen or that's right while watching a political show more than you do in church, we are Crossroads Bible Church, we have a problem, right? I think if your confidence in the sovereignty of God and the goodness of this country and the goodness of God himself is shaken by an election, we probably have a problem and we don't focus on the right things. Why it matters, why unity matters, it's not just because we need one another. Why unity matters, that's what Jesus prayed for, is it's how people outside of us see something beyond us, see the goodness of God. That's why Jesus said in that prayer, be united so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And then verse 22, that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and hear and have loved them as you have loved me. My question is simply this. If politics don't unite us, does it come at the cost of the gospel and the beauty and goodness of God? Because here's what I know from the scripture. Our goal is not to win elections, it's to win the lost. That's what Jesus prayed for. <laughs> and so where are we in that? Is our priority to win elections or to win the loss? Ed Stetzer, uh, president of Wheaton, said, you can't hate people and engage the gospel with them at the same time. You can't war with people and show the love of Jesus. You can't be both outraged and on mission. As a church, we have to ask the question, especially in the political arena, are we trying to reconcile or are we trying to tear down? I feel for far too long, the narrative of the church, big C, has not been one of reconciliation, it's one of division. And when we do that, people don't see the goodness of God. They don't. They don't see the majesty of God, the bigness of God, the worthy of worshipness that God is. Andy Stanley says, difference is inevitable, division is a choice. The idea that we, as followers of Jesus, make a concerted effort, Democrat or Republican, to prioritize our citizenship in heaven over our political affiliations here so that people might see that God is bigger than those things. And when we don't, they don't see that. It's a problem. Uh, D.A. Carson, one of the better theologians of our time, says Christians come together because they have all been loved by Jesus himself. They're a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. 
a beautiful depiction of how we separate the two, the political affiliation and our religious beliefs, by understanding who we are and whose we are and where we belong, by prioritizing one over the other, and by fighting for unity, because it's in our unity, motivated by our love, that people see a God worthy of worship. It would look like our discourse changing. It would look like our dialogue changing. It would look like a lot of things changing. And maybe it looks like I'm known a little less or I make less headlines as a pastor or a politician because the sake of the gospel is worth it. The sake of the gospel is worth it. One writer said, he said, so take hope. The church will be around long after today's empires and political parties fade away. If you want to put down roots somewhere, put them down in the soil of the church. After all, the gates of hell are shrinking, not because of an election, but because of Easter. This is what we put our hope in. And so are we to be engaged in politics? Yes. Is it to come at the expense of the gospel? No. So ultimately we ask, is my engagement in politics dividing me or is it not dividing me? Here's a better question. Is it causing me to hate somebody that God loves? And if that's the case, it's got a wrong priority in our lives. It does. I've listened to too many stories over the last four or five years of kids who don't talk to their parents or parents who don't talk to their kids because they voted one way or the other. And that to me is very, very sad. I want the church to be a place where it doesn't happen. Since somebody also asked, if that's the case, how does the church, how does the church get involved in politics? <laughs> I'd say very, very carefully. But this is not going to be a church where I feel like we share political views from the platform. We say biblical views from the platform. So sometimes they intersect. Most times I feel like they don't. We're not going to be a church that tells you a political agenda to vote for. I'm not going to give you a voter guide. If I do, walk out the back doors. Lots of great churches around this. It's just not who we are. Because I think the unity we have to God is bigger and better. I love what Tim Keller said. He said, when the church as a whole is no longer seen as speaking to questions that transcend politics, and when it's no longer united by a common faith that transcends politics, then the world sees strong evidence that Nietzsche, Freud, and Marx were right, that the religion is really just a cover for people wanting to get their own way in the world. It's a beautiful way for us to talk about the idea that as a church, big capital C, I think we delicately deal in the world of the political understanding that God calls us to the world of the gospel first. So Jesus did. He didn't shy away, but he also didn't make it a priority. Uh, so to go along with that, somebody said, well, how do you act as good citizens then? Um, what Jennifer Marshall, who I quoted above, said from the Heritage Foundation, a political philosophy is most secure when it rests on the bedrock of a biblical anthropology. What that means is that our political leanings should always stem from the fact that we love people. Biblical anthropology is the study of man and how God sees man and how God created man and how God loves man and how God come to rescue and redeem man. So how do we act as good citizens in a political world? How does the church engage? I think first we, we always, always, always see the people behind the politics. Always see the people behind the politics. I mean, so often the people we disagree with on the other side politically just become a headline or they become a position or they become a group of people and we lose the humanity in that. You know, Jesus never did that. No matter who we talk to, whether it's a woman at the well, whether it's Pharisees, whether it's tax collectors, whether it's carpenters, whether it's fill in the blank there, when Jesus talked to people, he always saw the person. We live in a world that fights against you doing that because everybody's the last tweet they put or everybody's the worst decision they made or everybody's the job they have or everybody's fill in the blank. We work hard in this culture, I feel like, to not see the people behind positions. And that's not what the gospel's about. Quote Andy Stanley again, he said, God called us to save Americans, not America. I loved it. 
I think it's the truth that we need to remember as the church. How do we enter into politics as the church? We enter into it carefully, and we always see the people behind the politics. How are we good citizens? By loving people well. I think, too, that remembering that our unity defines us, and it's led by love. It's, it's interesting when we talk about how to be good citizens. Um, there's a couple verses, I'll, I'll read a few, where the New Testament writers talk about their role in the world a world that was very antithetical, by the way, to the claims of Christ. In Hebrews 12, he says, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Romans 12, If possible, so far it depends on you, live peaceably with all. 1 Thessalonians 4, We urge you, brothers and sisters, to do more and more and make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders. Man, I feel like we live in a world that flies against that theme. That you should speak louder and louder and louder to make more and more and more of, this, of a statement at the expense of most other things. When the scriptures say those followers of Jesus, we strive for peace in, in, in another sermon completely, but peace, if not, peace is not passive, it's active. Peace is not just the ability to not act, it's to pursue reconciliation in all our spheres. That's what the gospel is. And so we, as followers of Jesus, are good citizens when we pursue peace all around us. Think about that the next time we post on social media. Is this promoting peace? And then delete it, you know? I think this is the kind of people Jesus calls us to be. Uh, Non-passive activists for the peace of God, for the reconciliation of God in our culture. If you want to read more on this, one of my favorite resources uh, is by a guy named Richard Niebuhr. He wrote a book over 50 years ago called Christ and Culture, and it's fantastic. He outlines five views to take uh, historically on Christ and culture, Christ against culture, Christ of culture, Christ above culture, Christ and the culture paradox, and then I think the last one is Christ is the transformer of culture. That's where I land. You can read it and find it for yourself. It's a really good read on just the idea of how we're supposed to interact as Christians. We have a, a, a link to a website that kind of summarizes those in a couple sentences, so you don't have to read 300 pages. You can go to that if you want to in the, in the, in the online forum. But it's this idea that, that as Christians, we enter into culture around us politically and non-politically because we're supposed to show people that God is good. And oftentimes, the leading edge of that sword is peace. <laughs> Somebody wrote, why are Christians so reactive or threatened by our culture? What would Jesus want for us to know and trust to grow into responsive rather than reactive people? I think we're going to deal with this one a lot more in the podcast, but I want to hit it a little bit. Why are we reactive and threatened by culture? It's because I think we've forgotten that Jesus is more than our Savior. He's our King. I think we've put the wrong people in authority of our lives. I think we've bought into the lie uh, that we live in a defensive posture instead of an offensive one. I think we've bought into the lie that the world is a threat to us instead of us being the threat to the systems of the world as followers of Jesus who live in the power of the resurrection every single day. I think we've built big buildings and we have all we need and we've forgotten that the people God called us to are the people outside of the big buildings. I think we've forgotten. We've created a culture of a come and see mentality if we feel safe and I don't know if the gospel was ever supposed to make us feel safe. That's hard. Because that means that you're not comfortable. That means that you're a little uneasy. That means that we might be in places where we would rather not be. Man, read Acts. And I love buildings, and I love churches, and I love feeling safe, and I love this country. I just think that why we're afraid of culture is because we've forgotten that, that in the end, culture doesn't win. Jesus does. And we are ambassadors for him in this world. 
And what would Jesus say to us? I think he'd say what he told his disciples in John 16. I've told you these things. So that in me you may have peace. In this world you have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. So two more questions. Uh, one is, how do we live with people who have a completely different definition of good? And how do we balance boldly speaking truth while also loving graciously? Um, <laughs> I think the first thing we have to do societally as a church is just simply acknowledge that the world's changing and maybe not in our favor when it comes to defining good. Let's acknowledge it. Let's not bury our head in the sand and pretend like it doesn't exist. Let's not, not look at the stats that tell us that the, the world is taking less and less of a, of a beautiful view of the church and more and more of a beautiful view of their own idea of good and bad and indifferent. Let's look at the stats that tell us now more than ever, more people don't go to church than do go to church. Don't read the Bible than do read the Bible. Don't call Jesus Lord than do call Jesus Lord. Let's acknowledge the place that we live in and understand it because we can never speak to the world if we don't understand the world we're speaking to. Let's acknowledge that we live in a tougher time than we have in this country for a long time. And that's okay. God is still bigger than all those things. Let's not bear our head in, in our holy huddles and pretend like it's not happening because then we get to speak to it. And we get to show people that God is good in the middle of it. So I think we acknowledge the culture shifting. I think we remember that order matters in how we talk to people that don't believe in the goodness of God. So they're redefining good, and God is our greatest good, and all things fall into place when God's greatest good is the pinnacle of who we are. It's the Augustine idea of, of the order of goods or loves. If, if somebody defines good as differently than we would, I think truth and grace matter. I think that we talked about it last week, but the order matters more. I think we meet people with grace and then show them the beauty of the truth that we have. That's what Jesus did. We talked about it, that, that a true thing, not at the right time, is no longer a good thing. And if you want to be heard, you got to earn that right. So we don't sacrifice the truth of the gospel, but we also confront people with grace so that they might see the grace of God. I think it's a, a depiction of how God loves us and how God spoke to us and, and how God deals with us. And fundamentally, Last week we had the question of, you know, how do we balance these two? And I said, what further promotes the kingdom is the question that should guide us. This is actually from a pastor, a friend of mine, and he would say that the one question he asks all the time, and this has guided me quite a bit lately, is in any relationship or conversation, when you're talking to or meeting with or dealing with something difficult, simply ask the question, what does love require of me? Right here, right now. What does love require of me? And do that. Don't not ask that question <laughs> before we post and before we have coffee with and before we chat and before we chime in and before we speak up, ask the question, what does love require of me? And then finally to the question of how do we live in a world where good is being defined by not our version of good? We acknowledge it. I think we speak graciously and truthfully at the same time. Order matters. I, I think that we remember the value of us. In Hebrews, you know the verse, 1025, it says, do not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encourage one another all the more as you see the day approaching. Man, the first century world was pretty antithetical to the claims of Jesus. They got worse. They started killing him and burning him and putting him in horrible situations in battle. It was, it was really bad. And it rose and fell and rose and fell until about 313. And, and, and why that's important to know is that in those times, you know what's vital to their success? They're coming together as followers and remembering what united them. Because as the world becomes more antithetical to the claims of Jesus, it's important that the people of Jesus come together and remind each other why it's good. And it's never been easier to not gather together with believers. I think it's also never, ever been more important. It's hugely valuable. 
be here in person if you can. If you can't, show up online, be somewhere in person. I, I think it's really valuable that the saints gather together so that we can, in a culture that redefines good, remember what it actually is. Because you will grow toward what you're around. And then finally, the last question that was asked, we're going to deal with in this series, is what is a good way to talk about the gospel in the middle of all of this? <laughs> and my answer is always, always, always twofold, incarnationally and intentionally. That's what Jesus did. Incarnationally, meaning we come to people, we meet them where they're at, and we say God loves you, intentionally says that you do it on purpose. You know, more than half of the country believes now if you share your faith, it's offensive. More than half of millennials believe that I shouldn't share my faith with others because it might hurt somebody's feelings on the other end. We are a culture that less and less shares the good news of Jesus. My question is simply, then how will people see it, hear it, know it, believe it? And I'm not saying get on the street corner somewhere with a sign. Don't do that. <laughs> I am saying be intentional about speaking about the goodness of God when people ask about it. And maybe when they don't ask about it explicitly, but ask about it. It's one of my favorite examples from years and years ago. A pastor friend of mine had a really good marriage and he became friends with this guy that didn't know Jesus. And the guy said, man, it looks like you have a really good marriage. How did you do that? And he said, if I'm gonna tell you about my marriage, I gotta tell you about Jesus. That's how we share the gospel. Intentionally and incarnationally. I'm gonna end with this verse from Corinthians 9. This is Paul. I think this goes before me in this conversation and really all the other ones we've had in this series. He says, though I'm free and belong to no one, I've made myself a slave to everyone to, min to win as many as possible. Think about that. Insert language there. Though I'm free and belong to no one, I've made myself a slave to Democrats to win as many as possible. I've made myself a slave to Republicans to win as many as possible. I've made myself a slave to homosexuals to win as many as possible. I've made myself a slave to adulterers, a slave to sinners, a slave to materialists, a slave to those that have ran away so that I might win some of them. To the Jew, I became a Jew. To those under the law, I became like the law. And then he skips down and he says, I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means, I might save some. I do this for the sake of the gospel that I might share in its blessings. I think in this conversation of politics, we've forgotten where the power of the gospel lies. I think the power of the gospel is never found in politics. It's seen when we serve and love one another. And that's what we need to reclaim and remember as followers of Jesus, that we have a different version of good and it's set by our true king, nobody else. And the world sees it when we serve one another. The world sees it when we're slaves to one another. The world sees it when we put the good of unity above the good of individual division. They see the goodness of God who's worthy of worship. In, in politics and every day and every way, we serve others so that they might see more of the beauty of God. May our love lead them to the cross. May the promise of Jesus to reconcile and rescue people be our purpose in all we do, in all conversations we have. I'm gonna end with a poem from 1936 by a hymnist named Brian Wren. He says, where generations, class, or race divide us to our shame, he sees not labels, but a face, a person, and a name. Let me pray for us. God, I'm thankful for the diversity in the body of Christ. I'm thankful that as we come together and have conversations and, and disagreements and dialogues, we see depth in how we know you. We see depth in how you love us. We see depth in how the world reaches out to the lowly and the downtrodden and those that need Jesus. 
Holy Spirit, may this church be a place for those conversations. A place without judgment or condemnation, but a place full of grace. Whereas we have conversations and inevitable disagreements, it might not divide us. And remember the power of our gospel isn't found in politics, but it's found as we serve one another and show them that God's better and bigger. So help us to be those people. May we have the right priorities. And as we live life in a divided world, might our unity show people the goodness of God. We pray these things in his name. Amen.